Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Anagreta Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at ANU. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy, and the Crawford School, of course, is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Reminding listeners again to check out our degree programs and the short courses that are available here through Crawford, and you can find lots of information regarding the study options at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So I'm here on my own today without Sharon Bessel, uh, who we're missing and I'm hoping to see again next week. Uh, but I am really looking forward to today's conversation, which is on a very interesting topic, highly relevant, I think, for Australia as it continues to contend with the coronavirus pandemic. We're going to talk today around the Pacific and the COVID I- impacts there. The first case of COVID-19 in the Pacific was detected in French Polynesia in early March 2020. With the virus spreading around the world at that stage, there were grave fears for the region and how it might cope. Yet many parts of the Pacific managed to keep the virus out, or at least at bay. And in fact, there are a number of Pacific countries and territories that are on that very small list of places to record no COVID-19 cases. But whilst the region's seen some successes, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, there are now some concerning trends emerging. In Papua New Guinea, particularly, the country's detected more than 14,000 cases and there's been more than 100 deaths, although the true numbers of health impacts there may be much higher. Fiji, that had gone a year without community transmission, was placed back under lockdown in April after an outbreak from hotel quarantine. As of the 17th of May, 100 cases had been reported in that country since mid-April, with 46 classified as community transmission. These outbreaks and the threat of similar challenges around the Pacific are continuing to place pressure on a region that's already seen local communities struggle. So today on the pod, we're going to delve a little deeper into the issues facing the Pacific as a result of the pandemic, as well as some of the other challenges the region is facing. We want to ask what explains the region's successes and setbacks as it's tried to tackle the COVID-19 crisis, and what lessons can policymakers learn from the response so far? To answer these questions, I'm joined by two excellent guests with extensive expertise in the region. Firstly, Professor Meg Keane. Meg's the Director of the Australia Pacific Security College here at the ANU, where she leads a program of professional education, technical assistance and collaboration aimed at strengthening responses to security challenges in the Pacific Island region. Her current research is focused on regional security policy, Pacific human and environmental security, resilience, effective learning and knowledge brokering. Prior to her current role, Meg was a Senior Policy Fellow in the Department of Pacific Affairs here at ANU. Welcome, Meg. Thank you. Good to be here. Dr. Henry Ivaraturé is the Pacific Fellow at the Australia Pacific Security College. He's worked and travelled extensively in the region for over 28 years, doing research and writing about development issues, as well as as a public servant. His current areas of research are in understanding political instability, particularly executive stability in the Western Pacific. Welcome, Henry. 
Thank you. To be joined by these two great experts for Pacific security particularly, I thought perhaps we might start by reflecting on the coronavirus pandemic so far. Let's think about what's happened in the Pacific over the last year uh, to understand where we are today and how we got here. Meg, I'll start with you. You wrote a piece for policyforum.net recently describing the successes and setbacks of the first 12 months of the pandemic in the region. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the successes, particularly how some of these Pacific countries have managed to keep the virus at bay? Certainly. And I think in these times, it's good to to hear about the successes. And that's what the South Pacific uh, gives us in part. They're very quick lockdown, quick the most countries right at the beginning was key. They shut their borders. And that was because they fully understood what a pandemic was all about. They have suffered and recently in Samoa with the measles where they lost children as well as adults as it went through the community. And then historically with the Spanish flu where places like Samoa lost about a third of their population. So these are countries that understand uh, the severity and the havoc that these kind of pandemics can wreak. They also know and are well aware that their own healthcare systems are very limited. So if you get community transmission, the capacity to help your own people in in times where uh, an epidemic is, is going through a community is limited. So you have to be very careful. So they shut down quickly, uh, and that was important. In other areas where they were bringing some of their people back, and they did it very slowly, very carefully, contained in hotels, uh, tracking people. So in places like Vanuatu and Samoa, where they had a few cases of people returning with COVID, they were contained within uh, the hotel system and didn't get into the community. And then we have the example that you mentioned in your introduction of Fiji, where we do have uh, community transmission occurring. But if you look at what the Fiji government is doing, it's textbook, it's best practice. They've shut their borders. They have a hard lockdown. They are doing tracing. They're doing testing. They're targeting uh, the vaccines and increasing vaccines. So not a good situation. Our heart goes out to those in Fiji, very stressful at the moment, but nonetheless, uh, a rapid response to try and bring it under control. So those are our successes. There certainly has been challenges and we wouldn't diminish that and we can talk about those challenges as well. Let's talk a little bit about the setbacks. There's been some places where it's been much more challenging. Um, what's been, what have been some of the, the less successful stories that are out there? And I'm particularly thinking about the economic impacts of this across mm. the region. The economic impacts have been severe. Mm. So last year, approximately, the suggestion is 6% decline in GDP, but countries that were dependent on tourism just dried up. Mm. So 20% decline in GDP from Fiji. But you've got to remember these statistics are about the formal economy. The informal economy gets hurt extremely uh, as well. And we have little data on that. The market women, the informal service provision. So the people who get hit the hardest in any kind of crisis are those that are marginalized. And often those that are marginalized, we just don't have the data on. Mm. Uh, For example, women in the Pacific. They are well represented in the service sector, which has been hit hard, and in the informal sector. They are largely caregivers, and they're important to the livelihoods and incomes of their own families. So this has been devastating. The Pacific has also been hit not only by COVID and the impacts of COVID, but there's been three cyclones during this period as well, uh, and Category 5 cyclones like Cyclone Herald. So there's a double recovery that has to go on. And because they didn't open their borders, rightly to protect their people, they really had to do localized response with support from outside. The success of that, I mean, that was devastating. They are still recovering from both the cyclones and COVID, and it will be a very, very long recovery period. Uh, but they did set up the Pacific Humanitarian Co- Corridor for COVID and for uh, supplies to help with the cyclone recovery. And that has been valuable, but 
You know, it's really hard getting coverage in these countries. They're dispersed. Mm. Uh, so that's another challenge. And once you go by the cities, you've got to get shipments out to places uh, and reach people that are in quite remote areas. So that, too, is a huge challenge. And what these crises do is magnify weaknesses in the system. Mm. So healthcare, food systems, inequalities all get magnified by a crisis, whether that's COVID, cyclone, or otherwise. To say that's a theme that's come up in quite a number of the conversations we've had on this podcast around COVID is that that we're not safe until we're all safe. Mm. And we've got to take care of everybody through that uh, through through the, the crisis. Um, I think it probably takes us on to Papua New Guinea mm. um, as an example of all sorts of those elements <laughs> we were just talking about. And the health situation in Papua New Guinea has become very concerning recently. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's more than 14,000 cases now reported in Papua New Guinea, and there's been at least 136 deaths. And there are fears that are expressed that the health system will be pushed really to the brink and maybe past that. Um, Henry, what are the some of the impediments in Papua New Guinea in terms of infection control and the way in which the, the country is set up to handle a pandemic of this nature? Well, the first problem they have is uh, they have, they're, they're the ability to test as many people as they can. So the numbers they quote now say like 14,000 have been infected. That's a cumulative case. Eh? But we don't really know exactly the the extent of the problem because the testing has been very, very, very low. I think they've done around a one, somewhere around 100,000 people that they've tested and in a population of 8 million, that's really insignificant. So you really do not know the full extent of the problem. And of course, as you rightly pointed out, you know, PN Papua New Guinea responded likewise, locking down. And because they, the health capacity is, they understood is not able to deal with the pandemic. So they took the appropriate measures, shutting the borders. Um, they, the lockdown, uh, when I was there, I went to that experience. It was for three months mm -hmm. and it was all across the country. Then they opened up slowly. And then suddenly the um, the virus escaped, I think, one of the laboratories in, in Port Moresby, and it was carried across the country by health workers. And so that that started to uh, uh, spread out. Um, and they did various, you know, lockdowns in various provinces like West New Britain, where there was a sharp rise in COVID infections. But it's always very hard for 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 to enforce lockdowns. Um, the capacity of health the health services is is not there to really support um, deal with it. The law enforcement uh, side of the effort uh, is just overwhelmed by the extent of the problem that they're dealing with. So it's really testing the government at all levels, from the health level down to the security level, and even the the uh, getting people to comply with the regulations that are that are enforced or announced. So there's this announcements and there's this gap between getting the measures that have been uh, imposed to be implemented. That's, so that's a big challenge for, for PNG at this stage. Yeah. Mm. So the way in which the bureaucratic and the political system respond to this crisis is really important, obviously, in containing it. Are there successes that we can begin to see emerging in Papua New Guinea? Do we have um, evidence of policy success? A bit hard to tell at this mm -hmm. point in time, but I think I think what you could what you could see at the moment is is um, being able to deal with the, the stress. Eh? Fatigue is also popping in, mm. people's ability to continue to sustain activities. Um, I think one of the things they've done, I don't know whether it's been pragmatic, so they've gone to a new policy approach, which is what you call uh, Nupla Passing. Nupla Passing in talk Passing is basically, uh, it's a new way of life. And it's, it's what basically they said, either, either they're, been pragmatic, or they've come to realize this, the, the fact that we, we cannot handle COVID. Yep. So we've got to be able to manage COVID with what we have at, at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So it's a choice, it's a decision that government has come up with. Mm -hmm. And so they are managing, I think it's a very big policy shift from lockdowns to a living with COVID. That's mm -hmm. really where they are at this point in time. And um, managing with what support they get from aid donors, um, from Australia and New Zealand, World Health Organization, and uh, trying to see if they can contain it. So in a big country with 8 million people, um, many square miles of land, yep. you know, just trying to contain it, it's really hard. So we know the figures are coming in from 
really the the capitals, the provincial capitals, but we don't know the extent to which this COVID virus has gone through to the rural and remote areas where 80 to 70 to 80 percent of the population actually live. This is a really important narrative, I think, for us all to hear, and I'm hoping we'll touch base with you again about what's happening over the coming months. Obviously, long-term vaccines are going to be a really important part of controlling the pandemic, um, and we've seen countries around the world have varying success in the vaccination rollout. Meg, I wonder if you can tell us how the vaccine rollout's going in places like Papua New Guinea and around the region. I think it would be variable. Mm -hmm. And so we have successes in very small island states where populations can be 10,000, 17,000. So I think Nauru is claiming one of the first countries to at least have one vaccination for all its adult population. It's AstraZeneca, so they will have to go to the second. Uh, And so we are seeing in the smaller island states the vaccine rollout going well. Often that's because of associations uh, with metropoles. So we have the U.S. has stepped up with Operation Warp Speed for the North Pacific and and got uh, vaccines, large numbers of vaccines into their freely associated states. And so that's useful. Where we're finding it challenging is these larger Melanesian states, and and Henry was talking about Papua New Guinea, but even countries like Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, they're highly dispersed, they have outer islands, their fail systems are not good. We're learning from Solomon Islands. It's not just about getting the vaccines into the country. They have to be stored appropriately. So there's now worries arising about wastage of vaccine because the cool storage isn't being done appropriately. So they're spoiling. Do you have to have a distribution system? How are you going to get it out there through your transport networks? Really importantly, which has been a problem, is you've got to have good public education. That's improving in a number of countries. Fiji would be a very good example of positively leveraging social media. But as you know, social media can also... uh, lead to uh, concerns about the efficacy of the vaccine while you're having it. So, and I'm sure Henry can elaborate in PNG, but certainly in the Melanesian countries, it's very hard to get these messages out. And it's If you're going to do it well, you have to work in partnership with church groups, community groups, trusted individuals. It's not just a matter of having a radio show. So, Getting the rollout to work is in part, yes, getting the vaccines into these countries through COVAX, bilateral relationships, but it is also about logistics and education and having appropriately trained medical people to do this appropriately. And that's where we still have some work to do. P&G is probably, you know, a really good example of some of the challenges of the vaccine rollout, wouldn't you say, Henry? Yes, indeed. Um, they have received vaccine from, you know, donors. And I think at this point in time, they have vaccinated around maybe 8,000 people. Eight, I think the number might have grown in the last two days, probably 10,000 people that have vaccinated. But health workers have not been, most of the health workers have been vaccinated. So they are around about 4,500 health workers, including doctors. And the number is actually quite low. Um, and so there might be issues around health workers being vaccinated. And that's the same challenge we found in Solomon Islands as well. Is that a vaccine hesitancy problem yes, amongst the medical system? Yes. Right. And and there are concerns in PNG at this point in time about the vaccines going um, out of date. Yep. Uh, and so that's the problem of wastage coming in. Uh, but, you know, while there is a little bit of hesitancy with the health workers, the front, other frontline workers, that's where the biggest push has, has been. So a lot more people, over 6,000 people have been um, vaccinated. That's the biggest size, I think. Um, but then as Meg was right, rightly pointing out, you know, communication is really important. And PNG has over 800 languages. So how do you communicate the vaccine's effectiveness or its usefulness to a population with all this? You can use the three lingua or the two lingua, Frank, I talk pisin and police motu. Most people feel, uh, speak to talk pisin. Um, but, you know, messaging it is, is one of those areas that they are now working on, working on champions to champion the cause, getting the prime minister or 
leaders to actually vaccinate themselves, be seen vaccinated, be photographed vaccinated, be televised vaccinated to get the message out. So a lot of communication work and a lot of education work on why it is important for uh, vaccines to be to to be implemented. Yeah, being so big, I, do, I doubt it'll vaccination will take place in one to two years. It may may take a longer while then. Maybe up, maybe more than two years. I think it's a complicated picture that the two of you are painting. It's a very challenging time in the Pacific. We're going to take a short break here and come back in just a moment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm here today with Professor Meg Keane and Dr Henry Ivaratoure discussing COVID-19 responses in the Pacific. Before the break, we were talking about vaccination rollout in the Pacific, but I now want to turn our attention to the economic impact of the pandemic and also to the international response. We'll start by asking some questions around economic security. Whilst many of the countries in the region have been successful at keeping the virus at bay, we've already touched a little on the economic impact, uh, which has been quite severe and, Meg, as you mentioned, very difficult to measure. What sort of impact has this had on people's economic security through the region? What are the stories that are emerging? Well, I think you're, you've got high levels of unemployment, but we, we, we don't really measure that well to know. So once you close down a hotel, for instance, it's those that are directly employed by the hotel. It's those that supply food for the hotel. It's those that provide other uh, services, whether it's for internet, et cetera. So that is severe. In some of these places, the margins are quite small. And, and indeed, that's the case in Australia and elsewhere. So ho- restaurants, they're just closed down. They won't come back. Uh, And so you have a number of businesses that are out of business, people bankrupt. You don't come back from that easily. The other issue in the Pacific is there aren't social protection mechanisms. You just don't go on unemployment insurance or job keeper or job seeker. Uh, These things just don't exist. Now, a good thing that's happened is there's more attention to social protection. There has been some stimulus uh, packages. But social protection, again, can exasperate inequalities because if some people can access a small amount of their superannuation fund, that assumes you have a permanent job or you're with the public service and then you're probably better off anyway. So there's these issues where we're going to see possibly inequalities, economic inequalities uh, get larger because of COVID and that will take a long time to wind back. The other economic impacts are, I guess, more livelihood because uh, economics is about livelihoods in the Pacific. We had, because of COVID and people were asked, many governments asked their citizens to go back to their villages. Don't stay in the cities. There's no jobs here anyway. We don't want densely populated areas. This will keep you safer. But if you go back to the villages, then you're eating and living in those villages. So then there's a strain on agricultural production systems. You don't simply wave a magic wand and there's more food. It's got to get planted. And it's got to be shared then with a greater number of people. When those systems come under strain, you go to the Pacific refrigerator, which is your coastal fisheries. Coastal fisheries are already under pressure in some areas, but that also affects what you have to trade. So you won't be bringing as much to the market. You won't be getting that source of income. There's evidence that, therefore, this starts to affect nutrition. 
these are different ways that incomes are earned that are being impacted upon and really hard to get a clear visual of that because there just isn't national statistics on it. There's anecdotal evidence, but who's being hit hard, how villages are coping, how fisheries are coping, what's happening to household incomes, particularly those marginalized, live in informal settlements. Uh, they're not officially supposed to be there, so they're not tracked. So we don't know how they're faring. Mm -hmm. So these economic impacts are variable and can hit quite hard. And part of what the, the Pacific, its robustness is its subsistence economy, that it can look after and feed itself. It's not so economically dependent on cash flow. But those subsistence economies have been hit by both the cyclones and COVID. And, you know, that is going to have long-term implications. I don't know if you wanted to add with PNG and its economic impacts. Henry? Yes. Um, well, I also can speak from lived experience mm -hmm. because I arrived here in uh, January this year. So I spent the whole of last year there. And when COVID struck, um, it affected the supply. Because when there was lockdowns, it affected the supply chains. And supply chains were really important for um, people who live in urban areas. And, and they, their livelihood is really from marketing and vending along the roads or street sides. And so when these lockdowns came upon, it broke the supply chain. So people couldn't access produce to sell. And so when the lockdowns dragged on, people then basically started moving onto the roads because they had to survive. I mean, betel nut trade is a huge industry. And that's what channels uh, feeds a lot of people and in daily to have something to eat in the evening. So that got affected. Um, people, you know, who were working lost jobs. So that meant that the one income earner that lived in the house basically burdened or carried a burden of feeding everyone. So in my case, like I looked after 14 people and because they're not working, I have to make sure that everybody is uh, fed. And it's a big stress on individuals who are, you know, the sole breadwinner. Um, so that was a, um, and so that, that it, the stress on the economy is high. Um, Papua New Guinea, like other Pacific Island countries, also came up with these stimulus packages, trying to deal with uh, businesses that have gone, that went, uh, were suffering, uh, subsidizing their, their, their sustenance and all that. Um, PNG's case was a bit difficult in the sense that its financial position was rather uh, weak. And so, you know, you can, you can announce an economic stimulus package, but you need to fund it. And so a lot of the funding came from aid agencies and a budget that was, you know, depending on what came into the, the revenue coffers for the, for the state. So it varied across, uh, 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 across the country. I suppose, as Meg was rightly pointed out, if we're in the rural areas, you probably had access to your gardens and all that, but if you're in town, then you, it was a really it's, it's actually very hard to survive in urban areas when you don't have land to garden and you rely on uh, food supply coming from highlands or from the coastal areas into the city where you went and purchased those and then on sale as retail to to people in the streets. So it was fairly hard, yes. We have some interesting stories. Government reach isn't out into rural areas or even informal settlements. But uh, when we were doing some work with UN Women and tracking uh, how that has gone with the market ladies, which I've done some work with, some of the biggest successes were that some of these women have savings groups. They've been set up themselves or by churches or NGOs. And those savings groups were able to take those savings and distribute it during very hard times in the COVID lockdown and indeed the aftermath of the cyclone. So that provided a buffer and it perhaps provides a window in the future when you don't, or social protection systems have to be thought about in different ways. They're not always government run. Sometimes it's enabling communities to look after themselves and get that buffer that they control themselves within community. So we've had some positive examples, but of course, those resources are thin. 
you can draw off of those for three, four months, mm -hmm. but then they'll be gone. And that's when we're going to be looking at some concerning situations, particularly as Henry was saying, that this could go on for a year or two because uh, some of these economies are going to take a long time to open up again and get that COVID coverage. Mm. So it sounds yeah. like we've had some creative and entrepreneurial strategies that are available, but it's yeah. quite a heterogeneous mm. picture that you yeah. guys are painting. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were even predictions that um, – uh, remittances would, would drop in some of the countries, particularly in Tonga. There was a forecast that remittances would, would decline because yep. of the effect globally. Um, that was the forecast, but apparently it's, it wasn't quite so. Remittances actually in increased in, for countries like Tonga. And I suppose that's when, when, when it really matters, that's when families really start ramping up themselves to, to look after itself. Mm -hmm. So, um, the forecast was low by ADB and even and Reserve Bank estimates, but it's kind of proved that when the, when it gets tough, that's when families really rise up to to help each other, and that's I think one positive outcome mm. of this. Inspirational to think how we might be able to look after each other. This is a nice place for us to pivot a little bit from what's happening on the ground in individuals and communities to perhaps thinking about that broader regional response. Henry, there are a number of Pacific regional organisations like the Pacific Island Forum and the Pacific Community. Have these organisations played a role in the COVID response and do they have a role to play? Yes, they have. Um, so SBC has uh, supported the work of the forum um, in getting the humanitarian pathway underway. So the regional organizations are actually cooperating with each other to make sure that their their constituents are supported in these times of stress. Uh, and I think forum has taken leadership in that, although I must say they took a while before they actually came up with that um, endeavor to help the region. Um, I think now they are talking about the economic recovery. So the economic ministers have met and they have outlined a couple of ways in which they can try and uh, revive the economy. And um, I think committees have been set up to try and see how the economy can be resuscitated in the long term. So the so the region is 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 looking at COVID and its impact, and it's taking appropriate steps. Um, just how far the impact we see, it, we, we really depends on um, the support that they get to get uh, things going. Um, I think the initial stage was really around how to get the equipment and medical uh, supplies across the countries to deal with COVID. Now that the vaccine, now with vaccination, I think the next step is really to support vaccination uh, distribution and delivery across the region, to making sure that everybody's covered. I think smaller states like Palau and Nauru and all that may be a bit easier to cover. Mm -hmm. um, I think they could be looking at probably targeting their reach to the bigger island states, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, and maybe so Fiji. So what about the in instability that's been in the Pacific Island Forum? Uh, it was the Micronesian block walkout from the group back in February. Ha has that been a problem for the response of the Pacific Island Forum? I would say when problems like this and when COVID hits, I think the well-being of people is paramount. Mm. And I think leaders are very aware of that. Um, that is a political action that happened in a regional body. But I think the leaders are really looking more at the impact of their communities and their people. And that might, while it may have an impact on how the f regional organizations operate, I think at the, at the foremost of leaders concerns is the well-being and health of their people. So they will, they will take decisions that will uh, facilitate um, whatever support is needed to address this problem. And they will also think about how they will deal with their side issue problems. I might just call it side issue problems, not front and center, but uh, something that they can deal with along the way. It's just an unfortunate situation that happens during time of COVID as well. But I'm sure they are, the agenda is bigger in terms of COVID and the well-being of, uh, mm. of their people, Pacific Islanders. 
And the Micronesians aren't being um, excluded or haven't withdrawn themselves from some of the technical assistance regional agencies. So they are still active uh, in the group that's looking at resilience partnerships across the Pacific. They are still active in the work that's going on by uh, SPC on food systems and supporting food systems and the preparations for the Pacific's uh, involvement in the Global Food Systems Summit later this year. They are are also still supported by the Pacific Islands Emergency Management Agency. So they are still part of that community. It's working out what they withdrew from was the peak political body because of a dispute over the leadership of it. And that's still being resolved. But they're part of a number of things that will help with recovery when it comes to COVID and environmental pressures. Mick, what about the region It's beyond the region itself? Countries like Australia, the United States, you've already mentioned the, the way in which the, these countries can play a role. But um, thinking about how we can assist or how, what the role of those larger powers is in assisting the Pacific island, uh, what sort of relationships are we seeing emerge and what's the role for countries like Australia? I think we're seeing uh, a heightened role for multilateral interventions. And so we've seen that with COVAX. It's the obvious one in the World mm -hmm. Health Organization. We've also seen the quads, which are really, that's Japan, Australia, uh, India, and United States. It's usually a security consortium, but they have banded together and committed to provide $1 billion worth of vaccines into the region. So we see other bodies that are multilateral stepping up and engaging to support the, the region in a crisis situation. There'll have to be a lot more of that partnership. The recovery is not going to happen uh, country by country. It's it will be dependent on these partnerships. Australia has made a commitment that there will be enough vaccines for all those that live in the region one way or the other through COVAX, through Australia's supplies, and they have uh, provided to places like Papua New Guinea uh, vaccines and to Fiji for that matter. So that's all happening. There's going to have to be also an understanding that collaboration and coordination is very important and geopolitics has to be put to the side. So we have had China uh, providing PPEs, providing vaccines now that it's been WHO accredited. So we have to think about how we get this collaboration and coordination working well. Australia's got to play a leading role in that because of its place in the region. Obviously, uh, in dialogue with regional agencies like the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat. But that cooperation and ensuring we don't have duplication, too much of some things in one area, not enough in another, that means we've got to be communicating, working together. A common complaint in the Pacific is, you know, you, you have to work to one agency and do all their administrative stuff and then another agency and all their administrative requirements. These are countries with small, small bureaucracies, little capacity. They're trying to manage their own very desperate situations in some cases. We need to take some of that pressure off of them through good coordination, collaboration, and working with whoever it takes to work with to get the vaccines there, get the logistics right. That's probably key. Uh, and coordinate our responses into this region. You talked a little bit about the complexity of geopolitics, and there has been a lot of talk around the role of vaccine diplomacy with countries seeking to improve their relationships in the region by offering vaccine or pandemic assistance. Can you tell us, either of you, about how the vaccine diplomacy might be playing out in the Pacific? I think a little bit of competition probably doesn't hurt, and I think the Pacific <laughs> is quite happy to take vaccines that are proven and accredited from wherever they come. They have a policy... Uh, the Pacific Island Forum leaders of friends to all. And uh, yeah, I think that's <laughs> highlighting that uh, if you can help us, particularly in times of crisis, that that would be welcome. And so, yes, there is uh, a number of countries that want to show that those that they are closest to, their realm countries, their uh, freely associated countries, or indeed, in Australia's case, it's strong relationship across the region that they're able to deliver, they're able to respond quickly, uh, and they are willing to do so. And others will also try and do the same. As long as we're not tripping over each other, as long as uh, we aren't giving unhelpful 
assistance or not uh, effective vaccines, et cetera, mm-hmm. then I, I'm not that worried about vaccine diplomacy, to be quite honest, as it's being referred to. If it gets more vaccines into the region, well, as long as they're good vaccines, I don't have a problem with that. I don't know. Henry, Henry do you what, have a different view? <laughs> what do you see about the role of competition? It's not a new issue in the Pacific, but uh, do you see that there are advantages or disadvantages in the region? No, I'd I, I agree with Meg. Um, at this point in time, there's a pandemic that's hit the region. People need vaccines, and there's no place for competition. Mm-hmm. There's place for cooperation, place for as much support as can be provided by everyone to make sure that everybody's vaccinated. And, and you know, as long as Meg right, rightly pointed out, the vaccines must have passed the test. And, you know, you're not vaccinating people with vaccines that are not approved by WHO standards. I think right now there's, a, there's no place for this vaccine diplomacy. It's, it's more about getting vaccines out there from wherever, whoever can provide it to provide the coverage that's necessary to, you know, keep the Pacific safe. And I think everyone has, 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 is, is doing that uh, across, across the board. Australia, New Zealand, everyone is doing that at this point in time. So on the international landscape more broadly, one of the major changes that we've seen from the Biden administration after the inauguration has been the role that his administration is playing in terms of global climate efforts. I'm particularly struck that we're beginning to appreciate the language of climate change as an existential threat. How significant is this change, Meg, for the, for the U.S. T- taking a strong leadership on climate action in the Pacific? Is this, is this going to change politics locally? Well, I think it's huge. It's going to make a difference on the global stage. Uh, a colleague of mine from the Pacific, a colleague of Henry and mine, said that the Pacific had a collective sigh of relief when <laughs> Biden was elected. The first thing he did on his first day uh, in office was to sign back up to the Paris Agreement, mm-hmm. the agreement that commits countries to reducing carbon emissions and greenhouse emissions, and therefore, hopefully, in the long run, reduce the impacts on the Pacific Island countries. The leaders have been very clear that climate security and climate risks are the greatest threat mm-hmm. to their security. So to have the leader of the United States say, yes, Yes, we're here, we're committed. He then went on to run a climate leaders summit and he did push, or he and his administration did push other leaders and high admitters to be more ambitious in their commitments going into the conference of parties that we're going to have for uh, climate change at the end of this year in Glasgow. So that makes a difference that they are taking a strong stance. The other thing that the United States has done is to say that they will contribute more to the climate change fund, uh, which is going to be necessary because no matter what we do, the impacts of climate change, the ones that are just baked into the system are going to occur and they're going to hurt the Pacific. Mm. So that's quite important. Uh, How sustained more broadly the interaction and the engagement in the Pacific is going to be, really hard to to judge. It's only been just over 100 days. Uh, There's been a lot of good words, good talks, uh, policies announced that we have yet to get the details on. We know they will stay uh, engaged and possibly heightened engagement in the North Pacific. There's all sorts of geopolitical reasons why that will be the case. How much we'll see the United States out of the North Pacific and uh, taking an active role right across the Pacific in places like PNG, uh, I think we, we need to wait a little bit to see how that rolls out. Henry, have you got any thoughts on the role of the Biden administration in the Pacific and the change in rhetoric around climate change particularly? Well, well it's like Meg was saying, you know, they were withdrew from the region for a while mm. um, and now they're stepping back in. Uh, which is good to see, mm. and, and and stepping back in a big way. We, you can look, you can see that in terms of the vaccination uh, um, rollout they're doing out in the northern Pacific, small island states that will get covered very quickly. And if they if that can be extended to you know other Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, then it just shows leadership coming at a global stage that filters down to the 
the, the smaller regions of the Pacific. Yeah. I think the the other thing where it's welcome is there's concern quite beyond COVID and climate change, but illegal fishing, um, so securing maritime boundaries, being able to patrol some of the largest ocean territorial waters in the world. Uh, there's certainly, we are seeing increased commitment by the United States. Again, they have their own reasons for doing that. But if those reasons overlap with the sovereign interests of Pacific Island countries, then that's good. And if it's well-coordinated with other operations that protect their sovereign waters and their ocean resources, then that will be welcomed as long as they are uh, a strong partner in any of those operations and it's done with them, uh, then I think that will be welcomed too. So there's a number of steps that I think the Pacific could look forward to. It's how that rolls out and how extensive it is across mm. the entire region. As we approach that United Nations Climate Summit COP26 in Glasgow coming up in November, hopefully, how important is it for Australia's relationship in the Pacific for us to come forward with a strong position on climate action? Henry, do you think the Australian position on climate change is adequate? Well, that's what I've been saying. If you step up, you can't sidestep this mm. issue. You've got to confront it and tackle it. And I think that's what the issue has been for Pacific leaders, that um, maybe Australia has been sidestepping the issue. Um, Australia may have its views for that. But I think it's a, as a, you know, Australia is also a member of the Pacific Islands Forum. And forum leaders have collectively made a decision that climate change is an issue for them. And so it's, it's, it's a collective, uh, collective effort, including Australia, New Zealand and all the Pacific Island states to deal with, deal with this matter. So I, I'm going to reiterate, it's a matter that kind of resides step. You either step up and it's how far you step up on this matter. Meg, what do you think? I would agree with Henry. There's an expectation and it's, well on the record, right from the head of the Pacific Island Forum, Dame Meg, uh, to the leaders, whether it's Samoa, Fiji, that they would like Australia to take stronger action to reduce carbon emissions. Mm. Uh, that has been clearly stated again and again, and so that expectation is clearly there. Having said that, that's not that the Pacific Island people are also thankful for that when there is a crisis, Australia, generally speaking, is the first responder uh, and has been very active in supporting emergency service response. And from our own research on resilience, initiatives such as the Australian Humanitarian Partnership have been very well received. So it's not to diminish that. But nonetheless, as I think Henry's rightly pointed up, stepping up is stepping up. And for the Pacific, the number one priority is to bring down those emissions, the greenhouse gases, and reduce the likelihood of high impacts and extreme climatic events on them. They are, it is existential for them. For some of those small island mm. states, uh, it's their nation's survival. For many, if you look at where people live in the Pacific, they live in low lying areas close to the ocean. And then there's all the other things that flow from not taking strong action on climate that will affect our oceans. It will affect uh, fisheries productivity. It will affect agricultural productivity. So it's lives and livelihoods are at stake. And uh, that's really what the Pacific is saying. Uh, this needs strong action and needs strong action now. Mm. Really important narrative as well. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation with the two of you so much uh, today. Thank you so much again for joining us. And I want to get some final thoughts from both of you. We're now over a year into this pandemic. And whilst I know that it's likely to be far from over, I do want to get your thoughts on the one key lesson that we can learn from this crisis. It might be one of the successes or one of the setbacks that we've already talked about, or perhaps it's in dealing with the challenges that lie ahead. Well, Actually, there are two lessons for for me for the Pacific, and one lesson one is that you've got to diversify your economy. So you really can't rely on the tourism sector to sustain the economy. So the lessons for Pacific Island states is to see the impact of this pandemic and diversify your economic base so that you are prepared for other you know events that come in the future. And lesson number two, I think, is to use this as an opportunity, pandemic as an opportunity to start really investing in, in your health infrastructure. 
and getting in place the health infrastructure. Not only make promises, but you've got to act on the promises and make sure your health infrastructure is improved, supported in all levels to deal not only with pandemics. I mean, we are now investing in pandemics, but we should now look at it as a case where we deal with every other infectious diseases that, that are, that's going to confront us. So a big lesson for Pacific Island states, diversify your economy and improve your health uh, health health infrastructure. Two great points, Meg. If I was to build on that, I think it's the importance of collaboration. The Pacific Humanitarian Corridor has shown that, and it had to be coordinated both externally but internally. There's discussion right now in the Pacific about could they have a regional response for emergency system when emergencies happen, uh, that they could collectively help each other. So it's not just about waiting for uh, Australia and New Zealand to come mm. in, but that they'd have their own um, Pacific medical assistance teams that could go around and help each other. They would have their own emergency response teams. And so, you know, really thinking about this, because these crises are going to keep coming at it. And it's bigger than any one country, specifically when your country's small. So this collective action and getting these things in place early so that they can help each other in a, in a regional sense and build the expertise and the capacity to do that. Uh, and we're seeing that also with the Pacific Island Forum when they're trying to come up with their own resilience funds so that they can allocate, uh, particularly to local communities. And I think that's the other thing is to embrace the strength of the Pacific, which is its communities and its informal systems. And that has come to the fore in this crisis, whether it's the markets, the food production, the subsistence economies, uh, they need support and even the savings groups and the community groups and the church groups that give you the reach into rural areas and they can't be forgotten. They need to be strengthened because that's what will help with recovery or response and preparation in the future. Thank you, Meg. Thank you, Henry. It's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I've been, uh, I've learned so much through the, the stories that the two of you have told, and you paint this extraordinary picture of how a global crisis has local and regional solutions. And thank you so much for the time this morning. Thank you. Pleasure. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you with us again. And you know that we enjoy having uh, participation and engagement from our audience. You can find us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. You can join us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group, which is called the Policy Forum Pod. If you type that into the search bar, you'll find your way to us. And you, I, we hope to engage you in some ongoing good conversations following on from the, the podcast topics that we've got ahead of us. Listeners, we'll be back again next week. I'm hoping to be joined again by Sharon Bessel, but bye-bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 